Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. Great to be back with you. Uh, We got to take a little trip last uh, weekend. We headed back to Michigan, and I got to do a wedding, which is always just this fun, wonderful moment, especially when they involve family. And then there was this wonderful moment the next day where the bride came to me and said, we need to do the wedding again. And I said, huh. Uh, And uh, it turns out that just in the course of this, uh, she didn't realize that you had to pick up the wedding license before the ceremony, uh, and so picked it up afterwards. Uh, And so when she gave them the date of the wedding, she said yesterday, and they said, that's not going to fly. So we got to do a second wedding, which was perhaps even more fun uh, than the first wedding. Uh, But it was great to just take this week to go and and to be part of that. And I got to go up to a a retreat center just up in Sedalia as well, just spend some time in solitude. Uh, talk about that a little bit later, but yes, we're in this series, and the Sermon on the Mount, and and it was delightful to hear Aaron talk to us about that last week, Uh, and so in the midst of that, we, um, I got a text uh, on Sunday morning last week, Uh, we'd agreed that Aaron would do the first seven Beatitudes and I would do the last Beatitude. And he texted me and said, how would you feel if I only preached the first Beatitude? And I said, oh, yeah. Um, And I didn't answer, apparently. (laughs) And he said, only joking, sort of. Um, I'm prepped to preach them all, but I have a feeling if I, but I have a feeling I go over time. I'm spending about 25 minutes on the first one and five minutes on the rest of them, which I was absolutely fine with. And it was just, just incredible to hear him unpack that. I, I may have been a little salty just because he'd texted me earlier in the week and I'm just revealing how things work around here now, uh, was, was saying this. Uh, what was the name of the other sermon on the Mount book you're reading that follows the same pattern? I want to make sure I steal all the good quotes real quick. <laughs> Um, and so that's what we're doing here. We're just, we're just giving you joy as we work uh, together. Um, and if you have any questions about this, of course, you can watch us talk about this with joy uh, on, our, uh, on our Red Couch Theology pad- podcast. Guys in the booth, could you get the slides on the back screen? They disappeared when we changed the announcements, and so that would be really helpful. Then I won't have to spend all of my time with my back to everyone, just most of my time with my back to everybody. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest chunk of teaching. If you were to say, I'd like to figure out what Jesus is all about, if you were to open the New Testament and begin reading, this is the first section of teaching that you'd come to as Jesus unpacks what it is to live in his way with his heart. E. Stanley Jones says this, the Sermon on the Mount seems dangerous. (laughs) Sermon on the Mount seems dangerous. It challenges the whole underlying conception on which modern society is built. It would replace it by a new conception, animate it with a new motive, and turn it towards a new goal. It's fundamentally a different way to live, especially than the way we live today. And it's difficult teaching, as we'll get to. We're going to move next week into Jesus' more ethical teaching around the Sermon on the Mount. And there'll be moments where you might say, I don't know if I can do this. This feels beyond me. 
And of course, beautifully, it is. This life isn't meant to be lived alone. It's meant to be lived in the communion of the Holy Spirit. He empowers you to do this. And it's meant to be lived with other people. To do it together is different. But it is hard. So hard that some people have said, no, Jesus can't have been serious. He must have just been giving us this impossible standard so he could remind us that we need grace. And yet, the lurking question for other people has been, what if Jesus was serious? What if these words that we read of his are the way he wanted us to live? What what if uh, Jonathan Pennington says that the Sermon on the Mount is a guide to human flourishing? Because that's potentially the idea, that Jesus knows the best way to live. And really in amongst his words, here he's saying, no, this is it. This is what I want you to enter into. When you live life this way, you're living as you're made to live. That might be the invite. Stanley Harrow says this, that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of a way of life of a people, a people of a new age that results from following this man. That is who you are. If you chose to follow Jesus, you are one of these new people that are living life in a way that it wasn't lived until Jesus came on the scene. And of course, the whole thing begins in Matthew 4, 17 with this idea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The idea that Jesus shares is this, is that he has brought a new kingdom, a new era, a new rule. The king brings the kingdom. But you might extend that and say something like this. The king brings a kingdom that is both a present reality and a future hope. What what I've got to hear a few of you talk about uh, over the last couple of weeks is is this kind of like idea of what is the kingdom? And where is the kingdom? And when is the kingdom? Because if you read Jesus, he seems to say different things. He at times says something like the kingdom of heaven is within you. Another time he says the, the kingdom of heaven is near. Other times he says the kingdom of heaven is above. He he says lots of different things that might, might make us ask all of these questions. What is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? When is the kingdom? So I wanted to kind of maybe unpack that just for you a little bit with this diagram. If I were to show you this diagram, I would assume you would expect to play Pong, the video game that was so popular so many years ago. Uh, And that would be fun, but that's not what we're doing today. Uh, Imagine this as a graph. You have a a line that indicates space, kind of like the the up, above, and distant, all the way down to the bottom of the graph, the here, the now, the present. Uh, And then you have a horizontal line that represents time. Classic back to the future stuff, right? The past is here uh, and the end is here, whenever that might be. And someone invents something called the flux capacitor and it takes us off on a tangent or something like that. But, but if you were to say to Jesus, is the kingdom up above? Is it down below? Is it in the past? Is it in the present? Is it in the future? I have a suspicion that Jesus might say yes. Yes, it's all of those things. This kingdom is broad and it is big and is excited and, and the good news is, as well unpack, you are invited. In Matthew 5, chapter 1, it says, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Picture yourself for just a moment on a mountainside. Jesus is slightly higher above you and he's seated and he's sharing with you, he's unpacking for you his kingdom manifesto. 
his guide to human flourishing, his ideas about how the world should and does really work. And you get to listen, and you get to learn, and you get to be shaped in the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. And that's what's happening to these first followers as they hear these words that we're focusing on for a couple of weeks. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Jesus, as we unpack these words, as we continue to learn together, would you shape us and challenge us? Help us to hear the hard things. Help us to celebrate the good things. Help us to enter into your kingdom in new ways together as a community of people that are called together in this season, in this place, for your kingdom. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as a particular element of the Sermon on the Mount have been read in a few different ways and we, we talked about this a little bit last week and a few of you had questions and, and so we're still working through some of those questions with you. It's possible that when you read the Beatitudes, what you would say is you read is, I read a list of virtues to obey. A lot of the things that Jesus teaches are things to do, they're ethics. Jesus would say, I want you to live this particular way if you're going to follow me. Perhaps you would say that you see the Beatitudes that way. The problem is, is that some of those hit us in a fairly counterintuitive place, right? How many of you have actually actively this week tried to become poor? You probably haven't done it. I've been poor, it's awful, I know. I don't necessarily instinctively want to go back to poverty. How many of you have tried to be mournful this week? If you did, you probably struggled. There's a counterintuitiveness at times to the Beatitudes as virtues. It kind of makes us do some mental gymnastics as we try to get our head around. Just, Jesus, what exactly are you saying here? Now, some of the Beatitudes are virtues. Some of them definitely are. Doesn't necessarily mean that here Jesus is saying they're virtues to obey, but they are certainly things today that we, in following Jesus' teaching, have come to recognize he talks about as virtues. Being merciful is something Jesus specifically in other places says, go, go and be merciful. Turn the other cheek. Some of them are definitely virtues, but not all of them are, which makes them hard to take as things just simply to obey but maybe you read them that way, and that's fine. Some of you might read them as a pathway 
to be followed. This has become a popular reading maybe over the last hundred years or so. There's this idea that the first beatitude is the one that you do first. There's this invitation to recognize that you are poor in spirit, that you can do nothing spiritually for yourself. And in that moment, you get to mourn your inability to become in relationship with God and so on and so on and so on. And you move through this particular progression. And that might be a reasonable way to read the Beatitudes. And if you read them that way, continue to work with them, continue to pray through them, continue to allow them to shape you. But here's my slight pushback on that way of reading them. If you read them that way, then you have to look at the way that Jesus spoke them and say, is that how someone in the first century would have heard them? If you read them that way, you would have to say, well, that's an abstract way to read them. To read them in their original context, you probably wouldn't get that reading. And if you were to go and find someone from the first century and say, hey, what do you think about this way of reading what Jesus said? They might say, huh, that's, that's new information to me. I wouldn't have got there without your help. Do, does that mean it's wrong? Not necessarily. In actual fact, there's quite a few places that we see something like this in scripture. Jesus will say something and his disciples clearly misunderstand him. And then there's this moment where the, 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 the editor will say in the text, and then later they remembered what he'd said and they believed Jesus and the scripture. Sometimes we learn new things. Sometimes thinking changes. Sometimes Jesus reveals something later than he does in this moment of text. But the most natural way for a first century person to read these Beatitudes was probably this. Countercultural statements concerning life in God's kingdom to be celebrated. Countercultural statements concerning life in God's kingdom to be celebrated. The Beatitudes, I would suggest, read this way, they are deeply good news. They are good news. The king brings the kingdom, and I would suggest in the Beatitudes, it's this moment that he brings or makes a kingdom invite. If you have a memory that can go back back a couple of weeks, we looked at the first moment of the Beatitudes, this invitation to the crowds to come and learn. And we look at the very last moment where it says the crowds were amazed at his teaching. There's this almost celebratory attitude. I would suggest the Beatitudes are the thing that causes that celebration. Last week, I loved Aaron's pithy statement. He said this, he said, words create worlds. Words create worlds. And Jesus uses these incredible words to create this new kingdom, this new world. But I have my own somewhat pithy, less pithy statement (laughs) that I'm going to bring you today. It's this. Words create a world of worrisome translation problems. (laughs) Because the Beatitudes simply are very hard to translate, very hard to get right. And we see this all over the place. When you try and translate a word into a different language, it can get hard. Now, English is actually the easiest language to translate difficult words into because we have so many words that they're all over the place. It's a language that comes from a German background. It also comes from a Romance background. It has elements of Latin and Greek. So for the most part, you always have a couple of choices when you're translating into uh, English. You might choose to translate something as fraternal, but you might choose brotherly. They're they're similar, but slightly different. So you've got all of this range. You you might choose to say regal, 
you might choose to say kingly. Again, like you've got this broad spectrum. But, but there's sometimes words in other languages that are just impossible. So I, I, got, I got a couple of them for you here. Uh, Waldine Samkite. Walden Samkite is a German word. It specifically means this, the feeling of solitude and connectedness to nature when being alone in the woods. How many of you want some Walden Samkite this afternoon? Like, I'm like, I could do with that. Tomorrow morning, I'm getting my Walden Samkite. Um, but I have no English word for it. How, how about this one? I, I tried to pronounce this one. I can't even get it. Mamhipinatapi. Uh, I can't get it. It's, it's just not in my range. Uh, the wordless, meaningful look shared by two people who both desire to initiate something but are reluctant to do so. Uh, how, how many of you had one of those moments with the person sitting next to you? Like, am I going to ask or are you going to? I don't know. I, I just, I'm not sure. But we don't have a word, right? Uh, maybe the closest, closest we have is Twitter pated or something like that. Some <laughs> classic Disney word. Uh, Yabane. Yabane is this. It's a declaration of one's hope that they'll die before another person because of how unbearable it would be to live without them. We don't have a single word for it. So what we have to do in those moments when we have these words that appear is we do what's called in the translation world, we gloss. We have to find a way to kind of like match everything up so we at least get the meaning across. In this case, we might turn to something like Romeo and Juliet. Uh, and we might talk about their story. Or we might talk about how Winnie the Pooh in a moment of genius declares to Christopher Robin, if you live a hundred years, I want to live a hundred years minus one day because I can't live without you. It gets you to the feeling of the word, even if you don't have a word just to translate it to. And last week we came across another word that has exactly this problem. Makarios. Blessed. It's this word that Jesus uses over and over again to talk in the Beatitudes about what it is to live in this particular way or have this particular place in life that you're existing in right now. It's an observation that somebody is flourishing. It means a few different things. It might mean congratulations. It might mean flourishing. It might mean happy maybe a different way to read it than you've come across before. Perhaps the best translation someone suggested is the Australian kind of accent of like, ah, oh, good on ya. That's like, good for you. Like, that's wonderful, look at you go. Like, you're, you're doing it, you're making it happen. The, the Welsh Gwynaboid uh, literally just means it's all white in your world. It's like everything's turning up great right now. It's this expression that almost can at times have a slightly sarcastic element. That moment where you might be like, oh yeah, must be nice. Great, it's all good for you, isn't it, right now? I, I got to see an old friend uh, just the other day and as I looked in her garage, we were going out for a drive and she was leaving in one car and she had a Tesla parked in the, in the garage, just unused right now. And I was like, huh, must be nice. It's all right for some people, isn't it? Macarius, that's, that's what I'm saying really, you're doing well, that's the language, it must be nice. And Jesus uses this word over and over again. Now there is another word in Greek that comes up fairly often that also means blessed. 
It's the word that appears in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, if you don't speak Greek, you read blessed here and blessed there and assume the same thing is being said. But it isn't. But it isn't. The word makarios is a human observation. The word eulogio is a divine action, a moment of blessing where God does something for you. He takes action and he gives blessing to a human being. This exact same pattern, interestingly, also happens in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, like me, for many years, I read that as saying, If I don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, God will actively bless me. He'll produce blessing upon me. But again, just like Macarius, the word here doesn't mean that. What it actually means is, when you do this, you step into some natural human flourishing. You step into the best way to live. Just like in Greek, there's another word for bless in Hebrew. Numbers chapter 6 says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. There's Asherah, a human observation. Baruch, a divine action. So you see this beautiful symmetry in the Hebrew and Greek language, which means if Jesus wants to talk about the Beatitudes as something you do to receive blessing, he has an obvious language choice that he doesn't make. Decided the best way maybe to see this in practice was to draw a stick figure for you. And on one hand, you have eulogio, is a divine blessing, it comes downwards. On the other hand, you have makarios, it's this observation. Jesus offers a list of people that he considers makarios, including, as we learned last week, this group that are the poor in spirit, the street kids of the world, they are included in this. Jesus gives this list of people and says, you are blessed, you are blessed. You are to be congratulated, you are flourishing. And yet the problem with that is this, don't we already know who's blessed? Don't we already know it's it's not those people? There's another list of Beatitudes from the second century BC by a guy called Ben Sirach. In his book Sirach, he says this, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed. A tenth my tongue proclaims, a man, a man specifically, not gonna work in this generation, pal, who can rejoice in his children. A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes, happy the man who lives with a sensible wife, and the one who does not plow with ox and ass together. Really frustrates me when I have to do that. I'm like, no, it's not how it's supposed to be. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend. And the one who's, that's so fitting for this generation, wow. Uh, And the one who speaks to attentive listeners. Watching you guys, anyone start sleeping? Oh no. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord surpasses everything to whom we can compare the one, to whom can we compare the one who has it? Those are the people that are blessed. The early risers are blessed. 
The ones that bought property in Denver in the 70s and 80s, those are the ones that are blessed. The trust fund people, those are the ones that are blessed. Those are the ones that are happy. The ones with the good job, the ones that have their retirement capital sewn up in a safe place. The Oregon Ducks, they, they are blessed. It's too soon, too soon, I don't know. The 2-0 and o teams, they are blessed. We know who's blessed. Jesus' list doesn't make sense on those terms. Congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Congratulations to the meek. And we translate that word sometimes meek as power under control, but but actually it could just be translated as the powerless ones, the ones that don't get a say, for they will inherit the earth. Maybe that's a question you've had going around in your mind. Who inherits the earth? Uh, It's on all of our minds. Congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Congratulations to the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Congratulations to the poor here in heart, for they will see God. Congratulations to the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Congratulations to those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's like Jesus sends this big invite to all of these people from all over the place, people who have heard his kingdom message and who probably say, it's not for me, and he says, no, it is for you. It's the verbal version of his story or the teaching version of his story of the prodigal son here shown in this beautiful picture by uh, Charlie McKessie. It's this moment where the son arrives home with no expectation and no deserving of being accepted and falls into his father's arms and his father says, yes, this kingdom is for you still. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says to all you people, the kingdom, it is for you, it's yours. Keep moving in its direction. Come and find life in this kingdom. Come and find flourishing in this kingdom. I would suggest that on this mountaintop a couple of thousand years ago, Jesus welcomes the outsiders into the kingdom on the mountain. He says, come here, come to me, this is for you. If you read them as rules to obey, that's fine. If you read them as a pathway to follow, that's okay. But the most natural way to read it in a first century context would have been, this is a surprising list of people that we don't expect to be included, and yet they are included. And if you are asking, is this for me, and you're starting this journey, we'd love to invite you to celebrate it in baptism uh, in just a couple of months, because this is the journey God has for everyone. And then he says this, Congratulations when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, picture yourself on that mountain and there's this moment where Jesus makes this compelling invite with a moment that Jesus says, come in to this grand story. Come find your place in this kingdom. And you, perhaps as a first follower of Jesus, say, this is wonderful. This is so welcoming. This is so exciting. This is going to be great. And then he starts saying things like this. And perhaps for those first followers of Jesus, there's this moment of like, wait, wait, what? Persecution? It's not always gonna be this moment on the mountaintop. Life isn't going to be easy. It's not always going to be grand. 
It's not always going to be this simple. Jesus, in this beautiful moment, welcomes outsiders into the kingdom up the mountain, but prepares them for life down the mountain. He prepares them for this moment where he's going to go and ask them to live a particular ethical way and find that it isn't as popular as perhaps they first thought it might be. And maybe you, like me, have had that moment too. You've had that moment where life just feels like it's humming. Like the thing is just good. The marriage is great. The kids are great. The work life is great. You wake up every morning to the blue skies of Colorado and you say, yes, this is where I'm supposed to be. And then there's other times where you're like, I didn't expect this turn. I didn't expect this change. I had exactly this moment at a place that's increasingly becoming one of my favorite places on earth. This is Sacred Heart Retreat House just down in Sedalia. And if you want to get away from things, I recommend this place. You have to be silent, which as you imagine for me was very, very difficult. It was a real burden initially, but then it gives this beautiful freedom. And the first time I left, I remember this moment where there was an argument at the gas station as I stopped for gas. And to start with, I was like, you know, it doesn't matter. There's bigger things going on here. Everything's okay. But it took maybe six hours for me to get back into the world's way of doing things and to bring my aggression at every driver that cut me off or every driver that drove at 49 miles an hour in a 55-mile zone. It didn't take very long at all. And Jesus has this moment with his, with his earliest disciples where he starts to tell them about life in this wonderful kingdom and this grand invite, and then he starts to use this language of persecution. Uh, Shashuko Endo, in his book Silence, talks about our natural dislike and our natural suspicion around anything like persecution. He says, already 20 years have passed since the persecution broke out. The black soil of Japan has been filled with the lament of so many Christians. The red blood of priests has flowed profusely. The walls of churches have fallen down. And in the face of this terrible and merciless sacrifice offered up to him, God has remained silent. God has remained silent. This is a man wrestling with what the world is for disciples, for Jesus' earliest followers, and perhaps for us today. In his commentary on Matthew, which if you like commentaries, if you want to read one, is probably the best one I've come across. R.T. France says this, as the following verses will spell out more fully, to live as subjects of the kingdom of heaven is to be set over against the rest of society which does not share its values, and the result may be indeed the uncomprising wording of this beatitude suggests that it will be persecution. Jesus is going to invite us to a particular ethical way of living. And if our understanding of that is mountaintop, that people will love that, the reality of down the mountain is no, that, that has rarely been true for most of history. Tertullian in the first century says this, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. It was a perpetual state of what the earliest church encountered. Perhaps you followed this story over the last couple of years, this story of a guy who was asked to make a particular cake and said, no, I don't believe I can do that ethically. And you may have different feelings across the room about this particular case. But I bring it up more just to suggest that if persecution surprises us, then maybe we should be surprised 
at our own surprise when we read what Jesus has to say because it seems like it should be the norm. Now, before we go too far down that uh, line, let me just say what persecution isn't. Persecution isn't I blasted worship music at 120 decibels at 11 o'clock in the evening and someone told me to turn it off. (laughs) That's not persecution. Persecution isn't I yelled a load of obscene things at a person of a particular persuasion and someone told me it was wrong and I wasn't allowed to say those things. There have been times in church history where things we have called persecution aren't really, they're not really persecution. And yet for most of the 2000 year history of the church, anyone who has wanted to live a way of following Jesus has found that there is a whole society that doesn't love that way. And let me remind you of that kingdom of heaven illustration for just a moment because it is a spatial thing. It is above and it is below, it is past and it is forward and there is a whole spiritual conversation that goes on there as well. The writer Aaron Miller said this, persecution isn't strange, it's sacred. It's not strange, it's sacred. It's something Jesus particularly said, if you choose to follow me, expect it. It's the normal. Maybe not in today's society, maybe it doesn't feel like it should be the normal, maybe it doesn't feel like it is, or maybe it does. But Jesus' expectation 2,000 years ago for his followers was live this way, and this is what you can expect to experience. He made a few predictions. One is that they would experience opposition, they would experience hatred, they would experience violence they would experience intolerance. And again, it was never supposed to be strange, it was expected, and he talked about it as sacred. Persecution for the church isn't strange, it's a sacred thing. Because these beatitudes, if we read them as this brilliant or interesting or whatever word, uh, congratulations, it catches us off guard, right? Because whoever heard of the story of the guy with the cake and thought to say congratulations? to you. I certainly didn't. And yet Jesus' brilliant beatitudes suggest to us that in those moments where he experienced this and all of the other things on the list, we are in a moment where we are to be congratulated and why? Why are we to be congratulated? Because in each of those, in different ways, he says this. In that moment, I am with you. In that moment, you are not alone. In that moment, you are not forgotten. I am present with you. In his first beatitude, he says this, why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. In that moment, in that moment of poorness of spirit, in that moment of brokenness, in that moment of being the spiritual zero, the kingdom of heaven is particularly for you. It is present with you. He is for you. The writer Evelyn War says this, we look back already to the time of the persecution as though it were a heroic age. But have you ever thought how awfully few martyrs there were compared with how many there ought to have been? Because the expectation was if you live the way Jesus asks you to live, it's a normal. It's a normal. Persecution isn't strange according to Jesus. It's sacred. So the question is to all of us that are invited to this kingdom and have chosen to live this Jesus life, what do you do if and when it happens? How are you supposed to deal with it? Because it feels like there could be all sorts of postures. And there could be the posture that I often find as my natural posture, which is to fight it. 
to become the aggressor, to be like the people that are sending the persecution my way, to act exactly like them. How, though, according to Jesus and the earliest followers, might we respond to persecution? And just remind yourself for just a second that of Jesus' 12 earliest disciples, 10 of them were killed for the faith that they claimed which speaks again to the lack of strangeness. And perhaps we find some kind of a response in the story of Stephen in Acts chapter seven. After giving this incredible speech where he unpacks the whole of Jewish history, where he calls people to turn and follow the Jesus that they have crucified, we read this. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become Paul and write most of the New Testament. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. When he said this, he fell asleep. He fell to his knees. His posture wasn't one of warfare. His posture was one of peace, which is hard for us to understand. Hard for us to understand, and even harder, I would suggest, for us to live. Somewhere the earliest church picked as their posture to persecution, and you can decide whether this is God's word to you and to us today. I would suggest they took this posture. We kneel to fight because we see with spiritual sight. What they saw was something that was beyond this world, that was different to this world, where the things of this world no longer mattered in the way that they might have mattered before. There was this moment where they chose a different pathway, chose a different stance, and they chose to kneel. And when you read all through the Psalms, you see this whole range of emotion, this anger, which you might feel in this moment, this fear, which you might well feel, feel in this moment, this all sorts of emotions, sadness, sorrow, all of those different things. And yet every one of those Psalmists brought that sense of emotion to God in prayer, which again brings us to that moment of kneeling. It seems like for the earliest Christians, that was the posture they chose. In the face of persecution, they chose to kneel to fight because they could see with this spiritual sight. That same Paul that experienced, though was part of that moment of persecuting Stephen, was part of his death, in turn experiences the same persecution. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because it's not strange, it's sacred. We kneel to fight because we see with this spiritual sight. In Romans, Paul would write, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In that moment, in that moment of persecution, we're reminded of Jesus' words, that when you are persecuted, 
yours is the kingdom of heaven. That God is particularly there in that moment. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is present with you. He is for you. For you as part of this big kingdom. When we think about these beatitudes as a final thing, I wrote this to share because this is how inclusive I think that they are. Blessed are the down and outs, the ones who gave up on themselves and feel like God gave up on them. Blessed are the church dropouts, the ones that God, the church pushed out, the ones that don't dress well enough, the cynical, the beige sinners, the too far gone. Blessed are those who can't lift their hands to the heavens because lightning might strike them down. Blessed are the ones who are outside the boundary markers and know it all too well. Blessed are the ones who stayed home from church to watch the football game at 11. (laughs) Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the ones whose eyes are red from tears. Blessed are the ones who have buried a child. Those who have longed for children and it hasn't been their story. Blessed are those who have experienced miscarriages, deep trauma, broken relationships, who can't get ahead. Those that have nobody you will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, the ones that don't go for the overt displays of masculinity. Blessed are the ones with an internal strength who don't have to win every time, who aren't the conquering heroes, who haven't trampled others to get ahead, whose business took care of its workers. You will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who feel like justice is just out of reach, who haven't got what they deserved or deserve what they haven't gotten. Blessed are the prisoners, the shut-ins, The single mother whose husband left with his secretary, who stopped paying alimony. Blessed is the man who's denied access to his kids. Blessed are those who have been deeply hurt and wounded and have cried to God to fix this world. You will be satisfied. Blessed are those who don't take revenge, who don't hit back, who see their enemy face up in the dirt and don't trample him. Blessed is the one who doesn't take an eye for an eye or flesh for flesh. Blessed are the ones who choose the pathway of forgiveness. Blessed are those who are so innocent they get screwed on every deal. Blessed are the naive, the simple, the common folk. Blessed are those that think a handshake means something. Blessed are those who take a man at his word. Blessed are those that wouldn't hurt a fly. Blessed are those who bring people together who can see both sides, who think that we can get along. Blessed are the ones that advocate for the other side, who try to find peaceful solutions. Blessed are the conscientious objectors. Blessed are those whom the world is coming after because they did the right thing. Blessed are those who've tried to shape the world in God's image and gotten burned. For for you is the kingdom. These are the I am with you's of God. His surprising, surprising congratulations to a people to whom that doesn't seem to fit. In the midst of that, there are his children. His children who have chosen righteousness, who have chosen his way and experienced persecution, who chose not to fight back, who chose to kneel to fight because they saw with a spiritual sight that this world was not their own, that they dreamed of another world, of God's world, of the world that has been shaped right now in amongst us. They dreamed of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, as we process, Would you speak to us? Perhaps in this room, there's some of us who are experienced something that we would call persecution. Perhaps it's in our marriage story. Perhaps it's in our friendships, in our business. Perhaps it's in our school life. 
Perhaps it's costing us something right now. And we need deeply to be reminded that you are with us, that you are for us, that the kingdom of heaven is for us, that you are present with us. Perhaps there's those of us that are just weighing this Jesus journey and are unsure it's worth what it says it is. And yet when we hear that deep, broad invite of Jesus to be part of his kingdom, we say, I want that deeply and badly. Draw us to your kingdom, your good kingdom story. Perhaps there's some of us that when we've faced persecution, we've responded with our fists raised high. We've responded as the world would respond. And now with Jesus' deep words to us, we feel challenged, conflicted, and maybe convicted. Would you speak to us and remind us all that you're constantly drawing us towards you? Because the kingdom is for us too. Amen. As Aaron leads us in a song, we're going to have some people out here that would love to pray for you. And if you are in one of those situations, maybe you're experiencing something you would call persecution. Maybe you're in a situation where you say, I've responded so badly at times. Maybe you're just figuring out what it is to follow Jesus for the first time. And they would love to be with you in prayer. So as Aaron sings to us, let's stand and feel free to come and make this space yours. Perhaps in this moment, you'd like to just come kneel at the front and receive whatever God has for you. But it's here for you and it's open now. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.